We're going to talk about the, well, really, what was the furthering of the English Reformations by way of the work of the Puritans, and we're going to focus on that today. But I wanted to just start by talking a little about last week. I had a few people come up to me and and, uh, questions or thoughts or comments about it. And what I want to say is everything that was presented last week um, about John Knox and the, and the ways he went about reform, and in particular, in his views on the civil authorities and how the Christian was to revolt. Uh, you know, I said last week, it's a, it's a messy topic. John Knox, great pastor, godly man, but I think there are a lot of things that are difficult with him that we, that we have to wrestle with. Um, and when we think about our own day, you know, how does it correlate? How do we learn from John Knox today? Uh, I don't believe it's always a one-for-one correlation. What he did was what we should do. I don't believe in, that everyone is called to be a John Knox, that everyone's called to be a, a Samson type. Um, but certainly a man that should be emulated. I think in many ways our day is different than John Knox's day. Um, certainly there is... Hatred for Christians in this country, certainly there is real persecution, and yet uh, it doesn't seem to be at the same level or in the same ways that Knox was facing. And, um, and I want to say that, you know, in our day, I think people that look to John Knox, and I think wrongly in certain ways, uh, the reforms they're looking for are more political than within the church. We have to remember with Knox... His foremost desire was to see the worship of the church reformed. Now, it spilled over into the the political arena because in that time, you remember, there were heads, the heads of the church were the heads of the state. And so they were so blended in the kind of way we don't necessarily have today. And so, but really, Knox's battle was the reform of worship of God. It was not political on its own. They mixed at times. And so I think we have to be careful thinking about this and I think we have to be careful with the contingency of reform circles in America today that want reforms, but in my, you know, at least my opinion, and for whatever that's worth, they seem to be driven by political aspirations and preserving the ideal, ideal of America over the worship and purity of the church. And I think we often are far too concerned with the ideal of America than the purity and the worship of the church. And so we have to be careful. When we think of Knox, we shouldn't take him and transport him to our day and say, this is the path. We have to have wisdom, and we need to have discernment um, and be careful. And we have to remember, you know, John Calvin really did oppose Knox in his views and, and some of the ways he went with opposing the church and opposing tyrants. And it wasn't like Calvin was living in a utopia. It wasn't like Calvin was living in a, in a land where he, he never experienced any, any tension from government or authority, and it wasn't like he didn't experience. Remember, he sent out pastors who were put to death, and so he certainly lived under many tyrants and had to deal with them, and so there's a tension there. I just wanted to say that I, we didn't quite have time, um, but I think it's important for us to realize as we Think about the life and the legacy of Knox and, and his work, and we're going to continue talking about it, and we're really going to see the way the Puritans go, which they're certainly, in a sense, children of Knox and his teaching and many of the other English and, and Scottish 
reformers, um, but we're going to talk about this area, which really encompasses the 16th, and you could say up, right up into the 18th century, um, and that's kind of the time frame when we think about Puritan, uh, what we're going to be discussing. So just to begin, you know, who were the Puritans? Um, probably a group that you've heard of. How many of you studied these, this group in high school? I know I did, which, I, you know, what do you remember from, at least from a secular point of view, about the Puritans? Salem, yeah, Salem witch trials, I mean, they were crazies, right? I mean, this is this has sort of been the standard view of the Puritans, in, at least in the secular world, and really not until the last 50 or so years, we, we've really seen a resurgence, even in reform circles, of embracing the teaching and the writings of Puritans, and so now you have, you know, and, and a lot of this due to the work of Banner of Truth, you have a lot of these Puritan classics being reprinted now. And they're incredible. We're going to talk about some of those and some of the authors and pastors who wrote them. But really, I've never read anything by, written by a, a Puritan in this area that was, eh. I mean, they're very helpful. And so, um, who were the Puritans? They were really, they were English Protestants that wanted to see the reforms of the English church go further than they did. Right? So you remember <clears throat> John Knox clearly wanted the reforms of the Scottish church to go further than the English church, and they did for the most part. Um, and in England at this point, um, the English church, the Anglican church, was uh, being established and set up by Queen Elizabeth. And there were many things the Puritans were not happy with. They were happy to break from Roman Catholicism, but they wanted to see the church go further. And they started um, separating from the English church. And really, they became... Now, the word... Well, I'll back up and say the word Puritan, it was not an endearing term. This was a term that was coined right in the middle of the 16th century. And this was, I would say, a slang word. It was, a, these, are, these are hardcore Bible-believing wackos. And the, the Puritans were, they were the outsiders, the, you know, whatever kind of modern lingo we can think of. They were the crazies, the over-spiritual couldn't take a break. Everything was a big deal to them. They were zealots. They were over the top. Um, they were accused of being against the monarch because, again, the monarch was the head of the church, and they were critical of the church. And so we're going to talk more about some of their characteristics, but sort of about the movement um, that drove and, and led to many of the Puritans leaving England and even leaving the Church of England. Queen Elizabeth becomes queen. Now, she was the half-sister of Mary Tudor, the Bloody Mary, half-sister, messy family. So she assumes the role of the kingdom after her sister. Um, and remember, Mary Tudor had brought back in Catholic practices in, into England as the state church. Elizabeth is a Protestant. Elizabeth uh, really establishes the English church, the Anglican church, and she puts herself as the head of it. It's more reformed in theology, yet it's very similar um, in practice and in the service to, to Rome in many ways. And this was in large part due uh, to sort of some less theological convictions. That was part of it, but there was a lot of uh, political reasons for this. Uh, Queen Elizabeth was 
greatly concerned with invasion or upsetting the Holy Roman Empire and having to deal with uh, other Roman empires that may invade. And so uh, she was afraid of this, tried not to offend the Catholics, if you will, and uh, sought to downplay, uh, have policies that were Protestant, but in practice it looked a lot like Rome. Um, One of the core things that Elizabeth was opposed to as queen was preaching. Now, there's a a number of uh, reasons for this, and I'll get into, but um, in 1558, there's an act passed called the Act of Supremacy, and this is what placed Elizabeth as, the title is Supreme Governor of the Church. So she's made Supreme Governor of the Church, and through this act as well, they def- the parliament, she defines what's constituted as heresy. So really all the power is, is within her, all the power over the church. Um, and all public officials, all, all the pastors, ministers had to swear an oath and that they were going to be loyal to the monarch as supreme governor or they would risk disqualification from the office. And so this is the, this is the Church of England as it's starting. A year later, in 1559, the Act of Uniformity is passed. Now, this mandates for every citizen, this mandates worship in every church, according to the 1559 Book of of Common Prayer. And it also, it mandates that all persons had to attend Anglican services each week or be fined 12 pence, which was three days' wage. And so this is for all the citizens. It It was a mandated. So the England is embracing this church, Queen Elizabeth spearheading it. Um, one of the, <clears throat> so this is where, you know, the Puritans are beginning to, to be unhappy and want to be out from under her uh, authority in the church. One of the key um, things that led to, key happenings that led to a break was what is called the vestment controversy. Now, if you remember, if you grew up Catholic, um, you'll, you'll know that they wear vestments. They wear the, the best way, the robes, ornate, okay? Um, this has been going on a long time, and one of the things that Queen Elizabeth was adamant on was the clergy would wear these. Um, there was an Archbishop of Canterbury, Matthew Parker, who was enlisted by Queen Elizabeth to crack down on uncompliant ministers. And they actually began to revoke license to those who preached if they weren't willing to wear these. So at one point, the entire body of ministers, pastors in London, were gathered at Parker's home of residence where he was pleading with them, charging them, commanding them that they were to, they were to conform to this uh, new practice. So 61 in this meeting, 61 conformed, 37 refused. Those who refused, they were suspended of their duties, their churches were taken from them, their pay was cut. Um, but then, you know, a lot did conform after. You know, the, the pastors began wrestling with the question, is it really worth breaking and, and losing a church over this? Um, and so this is when these thoughts and the streams of ideas come through and where this starts to mold together and push men and women together who are going to become known as the Puritans. There's also a group during this time, they've, they become known as sort of the separatists. And they, they also break away. They're not Puritans, but they break away 
They want nothing to do with the English church. They're much more adamant of totally removing themselves. And they weren't reformed in worship like the Puritans were. They weren't, um, they didn't adhere to things of the Word of God. They were, the separatists were very much about spontaneous worship. That was the hallmark they were known for. No liturgy. They wouldn't even use written psalms or hymns. It had to come from the believer's heart and spring up spontaneously. And this group sort of it led into some of the first English Baptist church uh, churches from there. But I want to go back and continue to talk about the Puritans. So Puritans did not like the vestments. They didn't like that it was being mandated. They didn't like other aspects of the church. Um, and so there was one group that didn't like it and yet weren't willing to break away. They didn't want to seek political reform. They didn't want to make a stink about it. They went along with it and they, they would say, oh, we will continue to preach and teach in our congregations underneath the Anglican church, underneath queen, the queen. Um, and really this group becomes less and less what we'd say today is Puritan and more and more a part of the Angl- Anglican church as it went on. It, it sort of started and then it fizzled because they weren't willing to leave. John Fox, we brought him up last week, the author of the Book of Martyrs, he was pretty strongly in this camp. Lawrence Humphrey, he was another one. He was the one that had originally kicked off the vestment controversy. The other group, and the group that really went on uh, to have the far more influential, famous preachers and had far more life was the Puritans within the English church that were convinced it needed major reforming and they weren't going to stay if it didn't see the reforms that they wanted. Thomas Cartwright was one of these. Another man, Archbishop Grindle, um, was another one who was an influential uh, bishop pastor at the beginning of this. And he got into his, the hot seat with the queen over his preaching. Now, I said earlier that Queen Elizabeth strongly disliked preaching. It was in the Anglican church. It was greatly diminished, um, like like what we talked about during Wycliffe's day, uh, you know, if there was preaching, it was Latin. If it was, it was hardly preaching at all. The priest didn't know the word of God. And so Elizabeth strongly hated and disliked preaching because it smacked of two things. It, it reeked of two things in her mind, democracy and anarchy. Now, let's begin with anarchy. Often, in the faithful minister, in the, a true Puritan preacher, Preaching the word of God was critical of the queen. There were points where these preachers and Grindall himself was, was critical of the English, uh, the queen, the government. And so she didn't like it because she said, okay, this is, this is anarchy. She also said democracy. Now that one, I read that when I first read that, I thought, oh, democracy, huh? Well, one of the things um, we have to realize is here that they... There was a parliament in England, there was voting, there were laws passed, but only 3% of the population had the right to vote. You had to have a certain, I don't know all the exact requirements, certain amount of money, land ownership. Only 3% of the English people could vote. And so now you have pastors who, in her mind, are having way too much of a voice in the public square than they should. And so this is against democracy. And so Elizabeth demands Grindle to stop, and I want to just to give you a sense of the character of these men and pastors, I want to read you. There's some back and forth um, 
by the way, all throughout this class, going through history, these are, this is the volumes that we read in Pastors College. This is really great. If you're interested, if this class has somewhat sparked your attention, uh, I'd recommend buying this volume. It's very easy to read. Don't feel intimidated. It's a four volumes. This is the fourth. But it starts all the way from the, the apostles in the time of Christ all the way to today. It's very good. Nick Needham, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. Anyways, so Elizabeth and Grindel go back and forth. Finally, he sends her this letter refusing to comply. Um, and he says, I am forced with all humility and yet plainly to profess that I cannot with safe conscience and without the offense of the majesty of God give my assent to the suppressing of the said exercises. Much less can I spend out any injunction for the utter and universal subversion of the same. I say with St. Paul, I have no power to destroy, but only to edify. And with the same apostle, I can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Bear with me, I beseech you, madame, speaking to Elizabeth, if I choose rather to offend your earthly majesty than to offend the heavenly majesty of God. It's a powerful statement to an authoritative queen who is insisting on her headship of the church for this pastor to say, no, sorry if I offend you over not wanting to offend God. And this was really what propelled the Puritan movement, um, the Puritans wanting to leave the Church of England, wanting to have nothing to do with it, um, Rather than, and you know, we think about Knox, rather than fighting it, often they said, okay, we'll, we'll move on. And some did. Some went up to the Netherlands, the Dutch Republic at the time. John Robinson led a group up there. Um, and again, there were some of the same things there. There were a lot of English supporters there, Anglican church supporters. And out of John Robinson's church, you may have known, here, remember the man William Bradford. Is that name ring a bell? William Bradford is in that church, and he takes 28 adults and their children, and they hop on the Mayflower, and they go to Plymouth. And so this is really what led to a lot of the colonization of America, them fleeing this sort of persecution and coming over here um, to, to America. And really, during this time, 1630 to 1640, it's estimated right around 20,000 people left. England, United Kingdom at this point, and, and came to America and began colonizing. <clears throat> um, so that's kind of a, again, just a brief flow of the Puritan movement. I want to talk about, for the rest of the time, the characteristics that made up the Puritans, what they were committed to, how they honored and feared the Lord, and why we, we should admire them. They are great. Let me... To say it again, they are great. The Puritans were great. Whatever you might hear anywhere else from your history teacher, they were great men and women of God. And really, the slang for Puritan is a, it's a term that we should be endeared to. If we're living for God, and the Puritans were, they were happy to have it. So some of the, Sort of the core ways they interpreted Scripture and viewed the world. For them, there was no distinction between the sacred and the secular world, between the physical and, and, and the spiritual. All of creation, as far as they are concerned with sacred, 
All the activities, whatever kind, must be sanctified. All of life should be holy. Everything we do should be done for the glory of God. They didn't say it was in these activities, but over here, it, this is life, and you, know, you have to handle this. Um, they were men and women of order, and, and they were matter of fact. Very down to earth. And again, if you've ever, how many of you have read something by a Puritan? Matter of fact, down to earth. Is that true? You know, you read them. Logically stepping through a process. Very practical and very helpful. Um, they saw the whole life and they integrated contemplation with action. Contemplation with action, right? They, they were very balanced in this. Worship with work, right? They were, they were intense on worship. Right, they one of the core doctrines of the worship was the regular principle. Right, and if you know the regular principle, anything specified in Scripture is permitted, clearly specified for worship. Anything that's not is forbidden. I mean, they took a very literal reading of the Word of God and said, "It says this, we'll do this. If it doesn't say it, we're not going to do it." They were big on worship. They're big on work. You read through the Puritans; they have a lot of sermons on hard work procrastination, uh, laziness. I mean, you can go through and they, they, especially now, Jonathan Edwards is, I don't know if he's technically classified, he comes after it, but he's very Puritan in his preaching. You, you read a sermon like that and it's like, it, it sort of pins you to a wall. You know, they walk through point by point and there's no escaping. So labor with rest, love for God, love for neighbor, they were big on these. Personal and social rest, um, wide spectrum of relationship responsibilities with each other. They sought to reduce the practice. They sought to reduce to practice. Okay, they sought to reduce to practice everything that God taught them, and so they would read the Word of God. Their their core aim of reading the Word of God was to reduce it to practice. How does this shape and change our life? That was the Puritan way of reading the Word of God. How does this change and shape us? Not many of them wanted to be revolutionaries. As I said, uh, they would tend, it was, tend to be the flow of the movement. They would, they would leave and did leave. Um, and they weren't big on, on saying, you know, we're going to fight it out. They did leave. Um, and they left to start their own congregations. Again, they left some for America, some for under, under countries, um, but really, the Puritans envisioned, and they were going for reform at the congregational level, meaning they were going for the reform in their own congregations and in the, their own churches. That was where they were most intently focused. And that was done through disciplining, um, discipline through the faithful preaching of the Word of God, catechizing the children, teaching them the Word of God, the spiritual service, and the work of the pastor. Big on congregations, big on the local community, the church body. <clears throat> they were also known, and one of the things that's a hallmark of the Puritans is they really endeavored to make their own families sort of a, like the church. The family was like a church. And they labored that those who were born into their family were believers. Okay, and so when I say they were like the church, it wasn't they were proponents of home churches or that kind of thing. But any child that was born to a Puritan was a part of the church. The expectation was they would follow and love God. 
And so there's a lot of practical sermons, teachings on raising children, how to train up a child in the way that they should go. This was a big part of Puritan theology and living. There's a well-known law uh, amongst the Puritans um, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and it was called the Stubborn Child Law. Have any of you heard this? Stubborn Child Law. And it was a law that said if a child struck or cursed a parent that they could be put to death. I want to read, I'll read, this is the, the law. It says, if a man have a stubborn or rebellious son of sufficient years and understanding 16 years. Okay, so the threshold was 16 years. Which, so 16 years, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastised him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and mother, being his natural parents, lay hold on him and bring him to the magistrates, assembly, and court, and testify unto them that their son is stubborn and rebellious and will not obey their voice and chastisement, but lives in sundry notorious crimes, such a son shall be put to death. Now that's the law. Now I will say, it's important to note, there's really no accounts of this law ever being enacted on a son, daughter. Um, and I think that's important. I think you could read something like that and think, oh, these bloodthirsty... Look, where does this come from? Exodus 21, 15. He who strikes his mother or father shall be put to death. And that's the word of God. So we shouldn't read that and pretend this is child abuse. God says this. Now, again, this was not the practice of going around putting children to death. This didn't happen. But you better believe this shaped the Puritans' approach to raising children. You know, imagine... <laughs> Imagine how our parenting would be shaped if we knew that this law was in the back pocket. You know, and let's not pretend it wasn't that the Puritans didn't love their kids. They loved them. They wanted to see them live <laughs> and serve God. And so this whole mentality approach, this law is really a reflection of the Puritan approach which says, you're going to follow God or you're going to die. <laughs> and that's true, isn't it? They, and they were very literal about it, and you see it come down in every bit of their parenting, but what a, what a good thing we should be committed to with our children. Imagine how your parenting would be shaped every day if you woke up. My children must know the Lord, or they're going to perish, and that's true. They'll perish, and the Puritans embrace that, and they live by it. Funny enough, do you know when this law was repealed in Massachusetts? 1973. <laughs> Made it that long. Isn't that incredible? 1973. <laughs> so, I know. I know. I'm glad I wasn't born in the 60s. So, <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, anyways, I, I'm struck by it. I'm struck by the Puritan approach to parenting. I'm struck by they would, were willing to put themselves out there. And again, take the Word of God seriously. You know, there's parts of the Word of God we read and think, oh, archaic. You know, we've evolved. We've learned, you know, we'll, we'll, what's the parenting trend? You know, positive reinforcement. You know, all these stupid garbage things. You know, so another aspect about 
the Puritan movement, we have to consider and is important is suffering. Now, this time period, it was a, a time of suffering. It was typical that families, maybe half of their children would live. You know, they'd have a lot of children. A lot more of them would die. You know, and so imagine half your children, <laughs> half of them not even reaching 16. And then when you get to 16, you have to then deal with their, <laughs> you're thinking about their spiritual lives. Anyways, so life expect- expectancy, you know, 30 years-ish. This time period, you think about the, the Puritans that left and went to America, you know, even further hardship. You think about the things they were willing to commit to and endure so that they could worship God freely. I mean, they really embraced hardship, and it was a hard time to live, hard economic time, and they suffered. And yet, the Puritans were not a mumby pumby, depressed group of people. You know, you might think of it, you, you see the you know, any image from this period, and, and all black, maybe they were all black. It just looks sad and gloomy. You read a lot of their works and writings, there's a lot of joy, right? There are hard things. There is a real dealing with suffering. But for the Puritan, they looked at suffering through the lens of a sovereign God. They looked at suffering not as random events happening that, oh, this is terrible. That, oh, the, the universe is pitted against me. They said, this is God. Working, speaking, acting. I probably no group in the, well, I can't say that. But this group was convinced, so convinced of the sovereignty and the love of God because of the suffering. They had to be. There was no other way to deal with the hardships of life. And so their theology of suffering was critical. They really learned, and this group is characterized by turning their face into it and understanding the God's mercy and love through it. The Word of God was also central to their life. Um, there was a high, high emphasis on knowing and loving the, the Word of God. And I believe J.I. Packer said this, again, take it for what it is, he called this the greatest generation of preachers ever. And I don't know if that claim can stand, but it's probably darn close. The greatest generation of preachers ever. And you... Go and read any of these men, John Owen, Thomas Watson, John Bunyan, Richard Baxter, Matthew Henry, can't conclude Jonathan Edwards, but sort of, it really, there are so many great men of faith and preachers that came through this time, and so many men that were gifted with riching, with blending the riches of the Word of God with the practicality of life. Really masterful at it, very helpful. They were methodical, organized preachers, but they were real. They were down to earth. They spoke to the people. Again, they're speaking to congregations where their child just died, and and their sister just contracted some disease and died, and they just came to America, and the ship sank, and they lost. You know, they're preaching to congregations that experience death, hardship, persecution, and it forms the way they preached. Again, another man that benefits comes after the Puritan era, George Whitfield. You've heard of George Whitfield? I hope. I had never heard of him until Pastor Scott. Shame on me. But I can't believe it. I mean, if there's a great, we've again read a great biography. I think some of you've read it, but George Whitfield is the main name we have to know. George Whitfield, speaking about the ministers, Puritan ministers, says, ministers never write or preach so well as under the cross. The spirit of Christ 
and of glory then rests upon them. It was this, no doubt, that made the Puritans. Such burning lights and shining lights. When the cast out by the Black Bartholomew Act, the, the act of uniformity that I mentioned earlier, when ministers were required to be under the church, wear vestments, church attendance. When this act came out and they were driven from their respective charges to preach in barns and fields. And this was true. They did leave the churches and they just preached in barns and fields. And this is what Whitfield does too. In the highways and in the hedges, they in a special manner wrote and preached as men having authority. And that's true. These men had far more authority than Queen Elizabeth. They had the authority of the word of God. And it's why we see the Puritans influencing us, the Reformed, <laughs> the believers of the word of God today, far more than the English church, the Anglican church, which is dead. Though dead by their writings, they speak, this is further, and a peculiar unction attends them to this very hour, speaking of their impact on us today. Another pastor during this period, Richard Baxter, wrote a famous um, book called The Reformed Pastor. The word and the initial print that was released, the word reformed was way big. You know, it was, it was extra bolded, massive font compared to, you know, the pastor, reformed. And this was... This was a part of Baxter's commitment and emphasis on the reform of the pastor needing to be the key emphasis. Not, again, what he's going for is not on, on having a, a, a rigid Calvinistic theology, not on having the, your eyes your dotted and your T's crossed, but on the pastor who ministers and loves the people and loves the word of God. A minister who is a role model, a minister that others can look to and can see God, can understand the truths of Scripture. <clears throat> and this was emblematic of all Puritan preachers. They were, again, I've said logical, practical, helpful, feared the Lord. They had patterns in their, in their preaching, in their teaching. Um, the patterns, you know, they would speak of the mystery of God, the, the, the awe of God, the greatness of God. And you, again, read, read these men, you'll find this. The mystery and love of God, they, the mystery of God, the love of God. They'd speak of the great love of God for us. Um, you know, again, you read it and you understand, they, they knew the love of God. They suffered, but they knew it. They trusted God. They spoke often of the salvation offered by God to those who would receive it. They spoke of spiritual conflict. It was ever before them. Spiritual conflict. They, they viewed the world through the lens, again, of our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, dark, the forces of darkness of the heavenly realm. That's how they really viewed the world. And so <laughs> the death of a child was God teaching them, disciplining, chastising. Correcting, training, loving, hard. But they viewed it as a spiritual event. Not simply the loss of child, but spiritual. They spoke of God's protection. How God would, is our protector. Shows and loves us. And they spoke often of the glory of God. 
the, the greatness, the majesty of God, they were utterly convinced of it. And, um, you know, in our remaining time, thinking about, you know, the Puritans and how we view and connect them to ourselves today, um, they were humble-minded, they were warm-hearted, they were fully oriented people to the Word of God, and they loved the truth, and they were seriously committed to it. And I think we can look at them, and there's certain things you'll read about them, and you think, oh, wow. <laughs> like this, again, putting children to death, even considering that. Um, but I think what we have to recognize and learn from them is they were truly spiritual giants. They were truly men and women that loved and embraced the Word of God at a level I think it's hard for us to comprehend. I think in part because we, don't, we haven't suffered like they've suffered. We haven't had to endure many of the things that they endured. I know there's suffering. I know many of us do, and there is real suffering. But truly, this categorically, this group of people known as the Puritans really suffered very difficult things. And it's so striking to me that their pounding and their reiteration of the love and the mercy of God is so dip, deep and rich. In the kind of way I think it's even hard for me or some of us to understand, having not walked in that path. You know, I can't imagine describing the mercy of God and talking about the death of a child. And yet this happens in this era, often. So I would encourage you, um, really, go to Banner of Truth. Type in, I mean, you can buy whole bundles of Puritan classics. There's so many. Yeah, I know many of us in here have read uh, Thomas Watson's um, Repentant, Doctrine of Repentance, that's what it's called. You know, a lot of it is very much like that. Um, very helpful, very stimulating, challenging. Um, and so this is a group that we should look to and seek to emulate. Seek to emulate in their vigor and following the Lord and it, really in their zeal for the Word of God and taking it literally. It's something that we should, as Christians, uh, seek to do on our own in our own lives and as we seek to follow God, and in particular as we seek to raise our children. I, there's a lot of things that they have to say on it that are very helpful. So anyways, that's, yeah, yeah. Right.
suffering has spread mm -hmm. as joy or It, it truly is, and how the work continued in America. And thank you, Randy. I <laughs> could have said it better. Would you stand and, and close us in prayer? Thank you. <laughs> no, <laughs> thank you. <laughs>